Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. John Bishop, MD, is an orthopaedic surgeon whose Doc Brady, who's a thriller series, reveals a dark underbelly of medical malpractice, breaches of patient confidentiality, and legal conspiracies. Hi there. I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Dr. John talks about how he made the switch from medicine to writing and reflects on the personal experiences that fuel his plot lines. We've got three copies of book two in the Doc Brady series, Act of Deception, to give away to three lucky readers. I can tell you it's a riveting read that throws a new light on doctors and their patients. Enter the draw on the Joys of Binge Reading website or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. You can find links to John's books and website also in the show notes for this episode on thejoysofbingereading.com. But now, here's John. Hello there, John, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much for asking me. John, when we did our introduction, we gave you your professional title, MD, because you started out as an orthopedic surgeon yourself. And a lot of people might want to ask the question, how does a surgeon find himself writing medical thrillers? Well, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm not sure what happened. I, um, I was an academic orthopedic surgeon, meaning I did a lot of teaching residents and fellows and medical students. And uh, at about 10 or 12 years after I had been in practice, I got burdened with that and changed my position to taking care of patients uh, only and not doing all the academic thing. I had done that for years and I had presented a lot of papers and written a lot of articles and uh, that got me in the writing mode. But when I gave it up, I had a lot of free time. And since I was an avid fiction reader and I had free time, I just sat down one day and started writing. That's amazing. So did you have any idea about structure and all that kind of thing when you started? No. Uh, as I said, I had run an avid reader of fiction and medical fiction. And I just basically uh, got on the old Apple Mac computer and started typing and just kind of see what, just to see what would happen. And I guess that medical thrillers would be a very obvious genre for you. But nevertheless, why did you decide to do medical thrillers and, and not, for example, maybe historical medical fiction or something something else? Well, you know, I kind of started out with writing some sort of traditional medical fiction. But, you know, I, I, I would get 10 or 20 or 30, 40 pages into it, and I just couldn't figure out where the story was going. So I decided to throw in a little murder in there, and that, that seemed to spice it up for me. Yeah, yeah. Now you've got the bit really between your teeth. As far as I can see from your online website, you've published three books in this series that you're working on within the last 12 months, or you will have by the end of this year. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. I have been writing the books for longer than that, but when I got this uh, contract, I guess you know Anna Seca, right? Yes, yeah, I do, yeah. Okay, when I got a contract in the firm, it was kind of a, a deal to put together three books, 
And uh, that was the first three that I had uh, written, which was murder, deception, and revenge. And deception is the one that is out right now, book two in the series. That was published in June this year. And I I jokingly have said to friends that it achieved the impossible as far as I was concerned. It made me feel sympathetic (laughs) to orthopedic surgeons who in the past I'd regarded as, you know, real just high-earning people in a very privileged position in life, and you you show another side of that, don't you? Well, I I do, and I I realize that they're hiring individuals, but you know, hiring individuals have a a side of themselves, too, that is sensitive, and I I try to present that, and I try to present the real feelings of how someone who gets sued uh, handles that whole complicated uh, business. It's it's much easier for the lawyers who do the suing, and it's much harder for the doctors who get the suit. Yeah, so just to give a little bit of background to Art of Deception, it deals with your protagonist who's a Houston orthopedic surgeon and he's sued by a patient for medical malpractice. Now, your Dr. Jim Bob Brady, he um, accepts that his, his patient has suffered a very rare complication, but he's a bit perplexed about some of the missing pieces as to why this really occurred. Um, can you give us a little bit of an idea of what sort of starts to unfold in the story? Well, yes. Basically, what happens is he has a knee replacement, and he gets an infection, and uh, he loses his leg above the knee, which is an absolute tragic, horrible complication. And going through the storyline, the patient was in and out of the hospital two or three times, uh, was absent for a month and then comes back with this overwhelming infection. And Dr. Brady just has it in his head somehow that uh, he, he, he understands it's possible that if he did something wrong, but since he brought the patient back in the hospital several times and had all this testing done, no infection was revealed while he was in the hospital in Houston. So he is convinced that something happened when the patient was outside the hospital that caused the problem. And that's, that's how the story unfolds. And then it gets more complicated because it does seem as if there's some inside source in the hospital that is feeding disreputable lawyers patient information. Has this actually literally happened anywhere that you know of? It has, and it happened uh, in a situation that, not to me directly, it happened in a situation that I was in some years ago that uh, plaintiff's lawyers were paying people who worked in medical records and emergency room and other locations to give them names of patients who might have a, a legitimate lawsuit that they could uh, go after. That's where that idea came from. Whereabouts was that? In Houston. It was in Houston. My goodness. And was it uncovered and were they found out? Yes. Yes, and people went to jail and all sorts of horrible things. But, you know, there's big money involved. So when there's big money involved, sometimes it's worth taking the risk. Yes, and also your your book is fairly sympathetic to some of those patients because even though they do allow themselves to be drawn into lies and deceit, you can sort of also have a bit of sympathy for how that might have happened, why they allowed themselves to be drawn into it. So it's not just a one-sided story, is it? No, it's not, and I try to present both sides, every side as clearly as I possibly could, but, you know, who's caught in the the middle of all this is the poor patient who's laying there with a lot of broken bones, no job, and a a bunch of kids to feed. So that's that's what I was trying to portray. Yeah, yeah. 
Now, your lawyer character, he's got a friend who's this lawyer, has quite a mercenary attitude to the court cases. For him, it's simply a case of economics, and he makes a point at one stage, there's nothing personal in it. But that goes rather against the grain for a lot of doctors, doesn't it? Yes, it does. You know, for, for the lawyers, it's strictly business. For us, it's a personal crusade. Yeah, yeah. The first book in the series, Act of Murder, involves a hit-and-run death of one of a, of a young boy who is the son of one of Jim Bob's friends. And as he tries to uncover what's going on, he traces back a strange and macabre conspiracy that reaches right into the highest points of Houston's legal community. I wondered if you found that after that book was published, some of your friends didn't want to talk to you or, or were a little bit um, wary of talking to you. Only the ones that thought I was writing about them. The rest of them were fun. <laughs> So tell us about the background to that one. Was there some fact in that fiction? Yeah, what happened in that uh, that particular novel, I got interested in this uh, osteogenesis imperfecta issue, which the boy suffered from. And through, through that, I kind of wove a sort of a medical mystery. But at the same time, what happened is a friend of mine's child died. And I was a very close friend, and I had to do all the arrangements uh, for the funeral myself. And I was trying to display the severe grief and emotional trauma that one goes through when they when they lose a child. I mean, obviously, having not lost one, I can't feel it, but I could write about what I'd witnessed to a very close friend of mine. So that was interwoven in the story as well. Amazing, yeah. And now book three, Act of Revenge, is coming out in September, I believe, isn't it? Yes, ma'am, September 10th. Now, you've changed your your protagonist in this one is no longer your Jim Bob character. It's a plastic surgeon called Lou Edward, and his life has been complicated by two major issues. Why did you change your, your main key protagonist? Well, I, I, I didn't really. What happened is that uh, I wanted somebody else to kind of get involved, and so I was going to be the third person looking in on the problem. In the story, I run into this guy literally on the ski slopes of Aspen. We have a crash, and I, I take him over, and he's got an injured knee, and I get him back to Houston. I get his knee all fixed up, and we become friends. It turns out that he has had his medical malpractice insurance canceled, because he is a plastic surgeon, and this all has to do with the silicone breast implant lawsuits back in the 90s and the 2000s. And so since I'm an orthopedic surgeon, I'm not involved in the surgery. I had to, had to find a new fall guy, and that's what Dr. Edwards was. Oh, okay, so Jim Bob is, is still in there. He's still in there, but he's just he's somebody else who's taking the heat besides him now. Yeah. Now, perhaps it's worth mentioning that these books are set in the mid-90s, aren't they? So they're set more or less 20 years ago. Has medical malpractice law and what's going on around it changed much in the last 20 years? You know, it has changed some because uh, term limits, I'm not sorry, term limits, <laughs> damage, uh, caps and limits on damages have changed. And so in Texas, uh, and I forgot exactly when it happened, but uh, George Bush was the governor of Texas, and he instituted uh, caps on damages. And so we had a joke that when the day that 
that bill was signed into law, all the plaintiff's lawyers moved to Louisiana. And so uh, I think the problem still goes on, except when damages are capped. And, uh, you know, doctors doctors don't carry the, the same kind of malpractice insurance levels that they used to carry because you know, doctors are a lot of, most of the young guys are working for hospitals, working for other doctors. And the situation is still there, but it's not as bad as it was back when I was writing there. Yeah. So how long is it since you were actually practicing yourself? It's, uh, 12 years. And have, how long, when did you first start writing? Uh, I started writing in the late 90s, uh, early 2000s. It's kind of slow and, and you know, just for fun, really. All right. So you've been going on the, this trilogy, which is perhaps going to continue into a, a series. We'll talk about that in a moment. But you've been going on that quite a while then. Yes. I, I, and, uh, you know, when they had an opportunity to get them published, you know, I had to go by and revise things and do this, but I, I had been writing all this time. There's a, there's a whole, there's a whole nother section of Jim Bob Brady books out there that haven't been published yet. So who knows if they will, but we'll see. Oh, great. So what do you foresee for Jim Bob? How, how many would you think it might extend to? Well, I've, uh, I've done eight and I'm working on nine. Oh, fantastic. Oh, that's great. One of the things that comes through is the feeling that there might be quite a conflict between the values that doctors are taught in medical school and what's happening out there in the real world. Is that still the case, or was this more of a conflict in the 90s? I think, I think these conflicts were very prevalent in the 90s and in the early 2000s. I think, I think the things have changed. I think things have calmed down a great deal. I, I still think you can find a bad apple in every bunch of lawyers or a bunch of doctors, but I believe that we've done a, a little better job of policing ourselves than we did back in, that, back in that era. That was a very unusual era, I think. Yeah. How much does Jim Bob Brady reflect you yourself as, as a character? What is there that's similar and what is there that's very different? As I tell everybody, you know, this is completely a work of fiction and the names have been changed to protect the innocent and blah, blah, blah. I think when you're writing, I've, I've learned after writing that many, that many novels that a lot of you, your personality comes out when you're writing. And then you as a writer, things that you think and feel, you eventually get down on paper as maybe somebody else's thoughts. But I, I think you... I, I think I'm always including my feelings uh, in these stories about Jim Bob, but Jim Bob's a lot better human being in person, I think, than I am. So he's, he's sort of like the white knight, you know. He's your ideal person, is he? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> That's great. And these, the whole aspect of medical malpractice and concern over being sued by patients was that something that affected you personally during your time practicing? Yes. You know, they used best years after saying, if you haven't been sued, you're not operating on anybody. Because uh, back in the day, everyone got sued. The trick was that the lawyers didn't want to go to court. What they wanted to do, you to do was to simply settle for the term for the limits of your medical mal. And if you got to that point and your insurance co coverage said, okay, well, we're going to settle, the lawyer took the settlement and walked away and you never heard from him again. So I used to think of it as a racket. Um, but that that's, again, something that was pretty prevalent in the 90s and early 2000s, and I think a lot of that's, a lot of that's passe now. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that in the end, if, if you did allow that to happen, you would end up being regarded as a liability by your insurance company. Absolutely correct. 
and then it would be very difficult to get insurance. It would become very expensive. Exactly correct. Turning a little to your wider career, was being a specialist, a doctor, an orthopedic surgeon, your first vocational love? Well, I was a musician originally. I, I started out playing the piano, keyboards, organ, and I, uh, I played uh, for years and played in bands all through high school. And then I got into college and was trying to play music and go to school. My father was a career army officer, and this was back in the era of Vietnam War era. And I can remember coming home for a holiday, my second year of college, with a pitiful grade point average, talking about some band I'd played with and where I'd been. And my dad says to me, son, in case you don't know this, there was no market for players in a foxhole. So that was kind of the, uh, that was the John Bishop wake-up call that uh, I probably ought to get together. And it just so happened I lived in one of these dormitory suites with about eight guys. And seven of the guys were all pre-med. They all had parents who were doctors. And so it sounded like maybe it might be a good life. So I kind of switched my major and became a doctor. And the rest is history. And it was that simple. <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly, but I made it sound simple, didn't I? <laughs> and are you still playing music today? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's probably kept me out of the psychiatrist's office being able to pound those keys, you know. So what? How, how active are you? Do you play publicly? Oh, I play at people's houses, and I have a little a fellow that I play, a little jazz riff at little gatherings and things like that. I don't do anything big anymore. There's a guy I'm writing, and writing takes a lot of time. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> Look, <laughs> is there one thing that you've done in your writing career, perhaps more than any other, that you'd see as the secret of your success? Uh, Gosh, you know what? I don't, I don't, I don't even know how to answer that. I, I, I can't think of anything specific. Uh, except the only thing, the only thing I've found, and maybe everyone's like this. Who's a writer? I, you know, I should ask you. But you know, I sometimes have an idea about a story, but I don't have all the details. And so I sit down and I start kind of writing and see, you know, like, like I'll say and see where the spirit leads you. And some, and sometimes you go down one corridor and sometimes you end up having to back up and go down another corridor but for some some reason I, once I get started the thing just kind of flows out of me I, I don't know if you have that experience or, or not but it's 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 sort of a unique and unusual feeling yes so that sounds like you might be more of what they call a pantser that you start with an idea and see where it goes rather than do a lot of outlining yeah that's that's very true yeah yeah and that obviously works for you if you've been doing it for eight or nine books. In fact, it might have got easier as you've gone along because of the experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's easier and it's more fun. It sounds better. Uh, it's a matter of thinking of new stories. But, you know, I guess there's always, kind of, there's always new stories to be written out there, just a matter of what comes in your mind. I find it interesting that a lot of authors that I talk to say that in every book, there does come a moment when they're really not sure how it's going to finish or what's going to happen next, or they have that black moment when they think, this is rubbish, what am I doing? Do you do you experience those feelings? Yeah, well, absolutely, I do. And, and then I have to just get out and walk away or go out and play golf or go play music or do it and come back to it and then see, see what will fill in. But yeah, it's called the. I like to call it the black hole that you just said. That's that's a great description of it. It's like my God, I don't know anything. I'm devoid of knowledge. I can't even write down 
I can't even write down the word and right now. Yeah, I think it's very encouraging when people who've done a lot of books admit to the fact that they still get those feelings because you really do know then that you just have to work through them and carry on, don't you? You do. You just have to keep writing and carrying on, and just and eventually something will just come on out. It just got you. Just got to let it let it happen. That might be advice for beginning writers, right there. Yeah, I think so too. Look, this is the joys of binge reading. So we are talking about books that people might like to discover, new books that they may not be aware of. Have you been a binge reader yourself? And what sorts of things do you like to read today? Yes, I have. And I have read voluminous uh, numbers of novels from all these characters, all these writers like John Sanford, John Grisham, Michael Conley, Lee Child. Stuart Woods, Daniel Silva, Greg Isles, uh, Michael Crichton, who's unfortunately deceased, Robin Cook, uh, just to name a few. And so, uh, you know, I'm an avid, I'm an avid reader. I, I love to see what my characters in those books are doing. They're, they're all big hitters, the names that you've mentioned, aren't they? Oh, they're all big hitters. Very successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Any particular um, titles that you'd that come to mind that you'd recommend? In certain titles from uh, these authors? Yeah. I would say of the people I mentioned, I have read everything that they've written in the last 20 or 30 years. So uh, I can't say that my favorite fav- favorite writer is unfortunately deceased was Robert B. Parker. And uh-huh. with this character of Spencer, which they eventually made a, a TV show out of, and it's been a couple of movies. He he was the he was the master of brevity. He he could he could say the fewest, he could mean the most and say the fewest words of any writer I've ever, I've ever experienced in my life. I'm sure you've read it. Yeah. He, is, he was a genius. He was a master. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. So circling around, looking back over the tunnel of time, at this stage in your career, if you were going to do it all over again, what would you change, if anything? Well, as it's all turned out, and looking in retrospect, I wouldn't have changed anything because it, everything that happened led to the next thing, and the next thing led to the next thing, and the sequence of events, many sequence of events would never have happened if I hadn't had the initial sequence of events, which I may have not been very happy with. But it turns out that it was all flowed as it was meant to flow. So I guess I have to say I would leave it all alone. And how did you find Anna? Um... Gosh, my wife uh, found Anna and uh, Fazia Burke, I guess, who was her associate, and uh, put put this whole thing together. Can you explain to people a little bit more what Anna actually does in the, in the whole chain of things? Well, Anna is a publicist, I guess you could say, but what she does, she promotes my, me, promotes my book. She arranges, uh, like what you and I are doing today, this podcast, she's arranged, arranged interviews, she's put my name out there. She's put the books out there. I mean, she's kind of, kind of your advocate, really. Is I, I would look at her as my advocate and current best friend in the book business. And so are you actually indie published? Are you publishing yourself? Well, that is, um, I'm not sure how to even answer that. We, we, have, a, we have, have a publisher and an, and an a, and a, a, a editor and a copy guy and all these people come together to, to put the books together. So, oh, okay, so it, it's a package deal where it's all kind of done by contract. Yeah, I started out the act of murder originally with an indie uh, 
publication because my son did that through Amazon and gave it to me as a gift. Oh, really? Is that right? <laughs> I had these old manuscripts and these old uh, floppy disks, and uh, I had fiddled with them, and I couldn't get anything going. I couldn't read them, and they were it was archaic technology. And my son said, "Let me, let me, let me look at that." And he's uh, in the software business, an engineer in the business, and uh, he comes comes to me on Father's Day a year or two ago and opened this present, and there is the book Act of Murder, and he's had it published on Amazon. And that kind of started the whole thing of me writing. That's wonderful. That's a great story. Gosh, floppy disks were a long time ago. <laughs> Look, so what is next for John the writer? Have you What projects have you got in the works, say, for the next 12 months? Well, I've got, uh, you know, I've got several more John, Jim Bob Brady novels uh, finished and some in the works. Uh, act of uh, the next two in line that hopefully will get published. Uh, one is called Act of Negligence, which is about nursing home malpractice. And the other is called Act of Fate, in which a murder is committed. And in the same uh, time period, my wife, Mary Louise, in the novel, gets uh, sidewinded in a car accident and uh, goes into a coma. And so uh, that, that book is about me, my devastation with her being injured, and number two, looking for uh, somehow the person who might have run into her. And so my son, JJ, in the book, gets involved is with his private investigation firm, and it becomes a very uh, complicated mess of uh, personality. So anyway, that's, that's what's coming up. That's a very nice sort of subtext in the book, is the obviously deep love that Jim Bob has for Mary Lou. So I can see that that would be quite a, a touching storyline to bring through yes and there was a lot of emotion to me writing that one too so so a lot of a lot of personal feelings about that as well but I, I think i think it uh yeah it's it's tragic but it has a good ending and so are you aiming to do almost like this thing of every three books a year or or something like that for the next little while well I, you know i think i i think two a year is fine the three I've, I've got a backlog so i could release three a year but then i've got to, then i'll have to hurry and write and catch up so i'll have to see it's releasing you're aiming for two at this stage <laughs> yeah great yeah i'm trying to get by with two now tell me do you like talking to your readers or interacting with your readers and how do you do that do you do it online or in person well, the only, only I have a, a website called johnbishopauthor.com, and there is a way. There are ways on that website to communicate with me via, via email, and so uh, that's that's all I'm doing at this point in time. And do you get people emailing you? Yes. And do you like talking to them? Well, you know, it's, it, it takes time to answer, and I don't certainly, I certainly don't mind uh, talking talking to people. Uh, I just have to sort of, you know compartmentalize that and give it a certain amount of time that's available to do that. And you know how that is. You have, yeah. yeah, you have pockets of time that you have to devote to, for this and that. So, yeah. No, I don't yeah, mind. I'm, like, I enjoy talking to you. You're, you're a lot of fun. And has coronavirus made much of an impact on your life? You know, I've known a few people that got it, but basically we have, we have been managed to, we sequestered ourselves at the right time and uh, really has except for having to get to go food for a while uh, and that sort of thing. I guess we did have to get to go food for about two months. Uh, not a major impact because fortunately neither my wife or I or any of my our kids have 
have had it. So that's that's a blessing. And your book launch in June wasn't too badly affected? No, it wasn't. As far as I know, it wasn't. Yeah. Because you weren't, planning to, you weren't planning to do a book tour or anything. No. That would have been... Mm. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. You People tell me that... It's interesting. People tell me that they have had trouble reading since the virus came about. And I don't really understand that. Maybe the people say, said, a friend of mine, I, I haven't read your book because I just can't read right now. I said, well, why? I said, because the virus. I said, the virus is not affecting your reading. Literally, it's just, no, but I'm just worried about it. I can't read. I can't concentrate. Have you heard that? Yeah. It's funny how it affects people differently. I was walking earlier this morning with people who were saying they just had to have stuff to read during lockdown. You know, it was the opposite effect entirely. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. Me too. I mean, I, have to have, I bought dozens of books when I thought this was coming, so I'd have something to read. I was, I was scared I had nothing. <laughs> Well, that's great, John. Well, look, I'll, I'll let you get back to your writing. It's been fantastic talking, and we look forward to seeing book three coming in September. Hey, thanks very much. I appreciate the time. Okay, bye. Bye now. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audioservices at gmail.com Or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.